We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. The good news is warmer temperatures are coming soon. And because it's the weekend, there is no bad news. Yeah. Here, Scott Thompson. All right, this will warm you up. This will warm the cockles of your heart. I said, this will warm the cockles of your heart. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. The good news is, is the weather is starting to warm up as we're heading into the weekend. I know it's my, it's minus nine right now. Uh, but honestly, as we, uh, Saturday, minus seven, sort of the same. But then as we get into Sunday and Monday, uh, temperatures to minus two, zero, and then, uh, up into the plus temperatures as we head into next week, just in time for the pavement to shift. So, uh, uh, there are warmer, uh, temperatures on the way. So good news there. All right. What else we got? Another jam packed uh, show. Hope you hang around for it and, uh, participate in it. You know, it's interesting and, you know, I'm all for the, uh, uh, the, the transformation to renewable energy. And I think most Canadians are. Most Canadians want to try to save the planet. Most Canadians want to do their part. As a polling says, I think where they disagree is how to do it. And usually that's when the extreme politicians come in and it's either this way, that way or the highway. And um, it's interesting because when we've been having automotive experts on, uh, we've been talking a lot about EVs, hybrids and, and that sort of thing. And as cold grips a portion uh, uh, certainly our portion, the Northeast, the North, uh, the Northeastern states and, uh, Northern U.S. and Canada, uh, EVs are starting to, it's, it's a good test run to see what exactly has happened and how they have progressed and moved forward and some of the challenges moving forward. And this is all part of a healthy discussion, uh, which is why some car companies are sticking with hybrids for the time being as opposed to go fully electric, although offering that option. So it'll be fascinating to see uh, where we go over the course of the winter and how we uh, improve this uh, moving forward. Also, former Bank of, Co- of Governor uh, former Bank of Canada Governor uh, Mark Carney has issued a warning at the World Economic uh, Forum, which is going on now. All uh, the bigwigs are together in Davos to talk about supply chains and how we certainly know over the course of a global pandemic, uh, as things were shut down, how it was tar- uh, hard to get certain things and what have you. Now, of course, uh, conflict in the Middle East and in, in wars that are going on uh, in various parts uh, or conflicts that are going in, on in various parts of the world is starting to slow that down. We're going to talk about that in, in the future and how alternate plans are being made. Uh, what else we got? Oh, uh, jet issues with Boeing, uh, a flame out on an engine. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, more on the Trudeau vacation as uh, – uh, the ethics commissioner uh, will testify in regard to what the office knew and didn't know uh, in regard to uh, 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 
in regard to the vacation and who was paying for it and and if they knew it was a free gift from a family friend. That is all coming up. Also, our friend Sam Cooper is going to be joining us, who uh, really broke all the stories about uh, uh, election interference and the Chinese Communist Party interfering in the last two elections uh, in Canada and such, uh, and uh, has uh, talked about trade policies uh, with uh, and, and how things are changing and money laundering and interference, where that discussion is going moving forward. We're going to continue to have that. Also, uh, also the Business Council of Canada uh, wants the federal government to make changes that would allow CSIS to share intelligence information uh, to help companies stop from falling into traps, which is fascinating because we can't seem to get a relationship going on between government and CSIS where they share information. So, uh, you know, uh, sunshine is the greatest disinfectant. Transparency is best. And now even the business community is saying, we got to start sharing this stuff and talking about what everybody's doing uh, in order to stay safe, in order to stop interference from outside uh, rogue players. And it sounds like a great idea, but for some reason, it just seems really difficult to do. We're going to talk about that as well. And AI, uh, more strange news surrounding Sports Illustrated, the magazine and website reportedly laying off most of its uh, uh, most of its staff and relying more and more on AI. How does that change the discussion moving forward? We'll talk about that as well. Noreen Virgin, the Canadian children's entertainer and broadcaster who lit up TV screens with her larger-than-life personality in the 80s, uh, 80s and 90s, has passed away. Born here in Hamilton, Ontario, started her career in education before pursuing work as an actor. To talk more about all of this is Bill Brio. Bill Brio is with us, author and TV critic here now. Bill, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, and I must admit some ignorance here. Uh, ignorance here, Bill. I did not make the connection between children's entertainer and broadcaster, journalist, uh, reporter. Well, she wore many hats. You're right, and that's the story of so many Canadians in entertainment. Is that uh, you know you, you almost can't afford to specialize, but she really uh, wore uh, you know got involved in newscasting. She worked at CBC in Ottawa and uh, CTV in Toronto uh, in the 80s and 90s, I think. But yeah, before that, she had this other career as an actress, uh, not just on children's shows. She was on a, a show called Police Surgeon back in the early 70s. Oh. No one will remember this. This was a CTV series, and it was the first. Uh, John Candy made his first acting appearance on this show. Uh, so she did, she dabbled on all kinds of stuff. She was on the littlest hobo. I mean, my goodness, wow. right? At night heat due South. Uh, but yeah, most parents and many people who grew up watching her on TVO will remember her for today, today's special. And all Canadian productions. Yes. I mean, as far as I can see, I don't see yeah. any American uh, credits. Uh, she worked in Canada and in the Toronto area. It, it seems a hundred percent, but, you know, as you mentioned, had a career as a teacher, uh, ran for office, you know, she dabbled in politics, not, uh, that many years ago, uh, as most people who started acting in Canada, you wish you had a job with a pension by, by the time mm. you get older. And, uh, looks like that was her, her attempt, uh, in, in later years. And my goodness, someone who was a teacher and uh, worked, uh, entertaining children, uh, could have made a great contribution to politics. And a, a very much different time in television, uh, especially when it came to Canadian productions. 
she was a pioneer, you know, uh, as a black Canadian, uh, you know, back in the seventies. Um, yeah, hats off to her. Not easy. And, uh, she, um, you know, she had a name that people remembered. Uh, and I think that, yeah, a lot of us know who she was. Uh, and uh, certainly if you grew up, uh, as a, as a child being, uh, you know, it's just like a surrogate mom, uh, mm. to a lot of viewers who, uh, love those shows. All right. Um, uh, Alec Baldwin back in the news again, it seems the story and, uh, the tragic accident surrounding the filming of his movie just it keeps coming back. Give us a bit of a status update. What's going on with this? Yeah. Rust never sleeps, Scott. Um, mm. and that was the movie he was working on. Imagine this, all this horror over a, a stupid film that, um, they're still working on it. They, they basically, they've now made, uh, you know, one of the people who died as a result of the shooting, the cinematographer, his estate is now an executive producer. They've gone forward with the series, but who's ever going to see this? Um, and really, as people are probably familiar, Baldwin had a gun in his hand. It was handed to him by a ballistics expert. It discharged and, uh, you know, a couple of people were shot and uh, one died. So, you know, this terrible thing. So all these civil suits have been launched now, uh, though, they want to see if there's a criminal matter. Ballistic experts have checked the gun. Baldwin claimed he never pulled the trigger. He cocked it, but never squeezed the trigger. They're saying, well, you had to have for the gun to go off. But really, the ballistics expert on a set of a movie is very much uh, culpable of, of what's happened here. You never uh, hand a loaded gun to an actor without preparing some sort of preparation. So, yeah, this film just seems to be inept in, in that regard. They didn't do it right. And look at the horror that happened. Uh, what about the expert in all of this, the handler, the expert that's supposed to make sure all of this is relatively safe? Uh, what has happened to them in this? Yeah, I mean, they're being investigated. They're just like Baldwin. They're being uh, either uh, indicted as he was today, or they're, they're looking into that because, again, that's the responsibility. I've been on uh, sets uh, in Toronto, uh, police shows. I remember... Uh, getting uh, invited down to a uh, target practice just to see what it's like. Mm. And they had a couple of ex cops who are ballist ballistics experts who literally walked through every single part of this exercise. And you really felt um, that you were holding dynamite and that you yeah. better know what you're doing. And they were watching carefully. That's gotta happen on a set with a star like Alec Baldwin on it. So, you know, I don't know his claim that he never pulled the trigger. You know, maybe maybe he's holding a loaded gun. Maybe he didn't think it was, you know, who knows? We don't yeah. know, but it looks like going to go uh, further in terms of a legal matter. So how does this change protocol on the set, uh, whether it's TV, movie, whatever? Because in, as an actor, do you want to ever pick up a weapon and point it at somebody? And as you said, uh, with technology nowadays, you don't even have to do that. You can hold a sock and, and they would just put it in <laughs> later. Yeah, this sock is loaded. Um yeah, you know, you don't even need a, a, the the flare or the bang or the whatever. Yeah. It can all be done in post. Uh, so I don't know. It, it just seems like shortcuts were taken. Uh, certainly, this there's been a, a history of people who have died uh, over the years. Uh, Bruce Lee's son, uh, John oh. Eric Hexum, uh, and 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 some of those were guns where they had blanks, but the blanks were like a spitball, and the gun was held so close to a temple it killed. Right. 
and uh, you just can't mess around, you know. And so, certainly, it. Uh, I'm sure insurance companies are insisting this has got to change, and uh, you know, there's been a chill in Hollywood as as a result. Bill Brio with us, TV critic and author, talking about the industry and all its ups and downs. Bill, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. You too, Scott. Obviously, we've had a cold, uh, a stretch of cold weather, freezing cold weather, gripping uh, the eastern uh, seaboard and, and uh, Canada and the United States and such. And, you know, initially started out west. We, they, they were, uh, I guess, minus 40 degree temperatures at one point last week. Uh, and, and what that has done is drawn attention to, hey, people's biggest concern about EVs is what are they like in cold weather? And does it affect charging and, um, and distance and such? And there have been a couple of stories about that. Let's bring in Clara Claremont, CEO, Plug and Drive, Canadian nonprofit organization dealing with consumer questions about electric vehicles. So here we go. Clara, thank Thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing very well. Thanks for having me. So, Clara, are you getting more questions now that the cold weather is here and, and obviously uh, the temperatures are, are, are quite cold? Are you getting more questions in regard to uh, electric vehicles and, and their durability in such weather? Yeah, we always get more uh, concerns in the winter time, but uh, but EVs perform well in the winter. And so uh i i'm always surprised at the at the media that we get around this time but um you know personally i've been driving an electric car for 13 years and i've never had my ev fail me in the winter so um again i'm just reading an article in the cbc i saw it on the news again last night where parts of the united states they were feeling uh issues uh, yes frigid weathered may reduce your ev battery range here's how to prepare so what are yeah. the downfalls we're just trying to bring the facts to everybody yeah. and uh, sure. because so you would say that an ev vehicle for you and a internal combustion engine there's absolutely no difference in performance or what uh, you have to be i i don't know about that but the, the, I think actually EVs do better when it comes to starting in the winter. Um, they, they, they start really well in the winter time and they have mm. great handling in the winter. What you will see um, is you will have a reduced range in the winter. You know, batteries are not as efficient when it's really cold. And so you might see a drop in range, you know, depends how cold it is. Like around zero, you won't notice anything. And as it gets below minus 10, you will start to see a drop in your range. And if it's, you know, minus 20 or colder, you probably see a loss in the ballpark of 25%, um, depending on the brand of car. I mean, they all have slightly different batteries, so it depends. But, um, but what I try to tell folks is just think about, though, how much you drive, because most of the cars now have a battery range of about 400 to 500 kilometers. And so if you're an average commuter that goes about 50 kilometers a day, you know, that's most of us, by the way, about 80% of Canadians, um, 50 kilometers mm -hmm. or less a day, you know, you are not going to have anything to worry about in a battery range of 400 that drops to 350 or even 300. So just to sort of allay people's concerns, if you drive a ton in a day, then, you know, you might be one of the people that has to right. be concerned about that. 
And what about if um, storing the vehicle, like, for example, if it's in a garage as opposed to outside all night in, say, minus 10 degree weather? Sure. Well, actually, I don't have a garage, and so I'm a good uh, example that it's perfectly fine to leave your EV outside. But what I do at home is uh, if you do have, like, your own driveway or parking pad, um, is to keep it plugged in. Um, it's, it's really better for the battery to keep it plugged in all night. Even if it doesn't really need to charge, it will just, it will condition the battery and make sure it doesn't get too, too cold. And then what, uh, what most, uh, most of us do is um, all these cars have an app. The EVs are very smart. And with your app, you can turn the, the cabin heat on from the app before you go outside. So your cabin will be all heated up from the plug. So you're not wasting your battery range on heating the cabin. So it's better to heat the cabin before you actually move the vehicle? Yeah, it's better to heat the cabin while it's plugged in. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah, it makes sense. Uh, and, and it's what about great because you can get into a nice warm car. Yeah. Um, so, and what about longer to charge in the wintertime? Is that a factor? And again, does a garage play a, a factor in that? Yeah, I mean, a garage will make it that it will be absolutely the same. Yeah. Um, but if you're like me and you have to charge outside, it does take a little bit longer. But most of us who are charging overnight, you know, from a from a plug at home, you know, who cares, right? I mean, you're yeah, yeah. whether it takes seven hours or seven and a half hours, it it really makes no difference. Where that makes a difference is if you're someone who has to charge at a, a public charging station and you're right. you're going to be there while it charges. That's a different situation. And what about age of vehicles, how they've changed uh, over time? Sure. Um, how does that play into this? Sure. The older vehicles, definitely the range is the, the original range is less. And then, of course, they lose more in the winter because those first generation of vehicles, they didn't have as good. Um, what they call thermal management. They didn't have as good as sort of insulation around the battery. Uh, and so they lost more. And so if you're in the market for a vehicle, those are questions you definitely want to ask if you're looking at used. Uh, do the colder temperatures, are they harder on the battery? And I don't know if we know this yet, because simply they haven't been around long enough. Is it, it, You know, if you take a, a battery that's 10 years old in in a place with a warmer climate mm-hmm. versus a place with a colder climate, does that, you know, back and forth, hot, cold, does that uh, lessen the, the value of the battery, the strength of the battery over time? I haven't heard that, but... What we do know is, like you said, I mean, the oldest EVs are about 12 years old. And so we don't yeah. have that much data on, you know, on 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 all those things. But one thing we do know is that the the, the batteries have are lasting well. And even ones that have been in a, you know, in Canadian winters for those 12 winters. And uh, most of those early EVs are still on the road. And so that bodes well for for the battery life. And some models better than others. We hear that Tesla's not necessarily the best in that situation. Are there some that do better than others? Um, probably there are. I mean, I don't have the data on that, but uh, certainly, you know, so, some of them, I'm sure, that were designed more for winter. Um, you know, you, you can do your research. It's easy to find out online. Um, obviously, if the range is a little bit more of the battery, the loss isn't going to matter to you as much. 
So, you know, these are all things that you have to factor in when you're thinking about which car to choose. Advice for those that are thinking about an EV. I would say don't hesitate. You're going to save a pile of money. Electricity costs about one-sixth the price of gas. So while you folks are paying $1.50 a liter, I'm paying about 28 cents. Clara Clareman with us, uh, sorry, Kara Clareman with us, CEO, Plug and Drive, Canadian nonprofit organization dealing with consumer questions about electric vehicles. Kara, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Take care. Thanks a lot, Scott. We're, uh, we remember during the height of the global pandemic when uh, everything kind of shut down and then there were shortages of stuff and, and it greatly affected supply chain and it took a while for everything to start moving again. And it seems now we're having issues, uh, again in, in and around the Red Sea. Uh, the former Bank of Governor, sorry, sorry, the former Bank of Canada Governor Mark Carney issued a warning at the World Economic Forum that supply shocks are becoming more present and forcing central bankers to adapt to tame the inflation as a result. Ofer Barron with us, distinguished professor of operations management, academic director, MMA program, Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto and here now. Ofer, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing fine. Thank you, Scott. So uh, obviously we remember what happened during the height of the global pandemic and issues that there are or have been in and around uh, the Suez Canal, Suez Canal and such. Uh, how concerned are you? What are your thoughts on what the former Bank of Canada governor had to say? Well, I uh, certainly understand where he comes from. When we are in a situation where the economy is relatively stressed, while it's going in good direction in terms of inflation coming under control in uh, many places. When you add stress to a relatively stressed system, uh, you create um, bigger waves. And I can certainly see the current supply chain issues worldwide uh, delaying some uh, um, central bank's authority from reducing uh, interest, rate, interest rates. Is the, most of the concern in and around what is happening in the Red Sea? Uh, yes, I think this is uh, the latest uh, event. But as you have mentioned, we are still kind of uh, going out of uh, the economic impact of COVID. Obviously, the war between Russia and Ukraine is uh, not helping. So, as I said, it's a stressed uh, situation to begin with. Adding more stress in the Red Sea doesn't help. How does this information or these observations from Mark Carney change things at the World Economic Forum? How is this received? Uh, it's hard to judge how will uh, policymakers would respond to this, but I do hope that they will take um, stronger action in terms of uh, allowing uh, free trade. Much of our uh, economical growth over the last several decades is related to better um, and freer economic trade around the world. The impact uh, of this uh, allowed us to increase our economy, to improve quality of life of people all around the globe. And when you put a halt on this, especially after, as I said, going out of COVID, this is uh, something that has a quite large economical impact. So I hope that there's going to be some stricter action taken against the uh, Houthis, essentially. 
Uh, because it involves a lot, so many involves involved. It affects economies all over the world. Is that th- does that mean it will receive greater attention than perhaps individual conflicts or wars that are going on? Whereas an interruption in the supply chain is like a global pandemic; it shuts everything down. Will this get more attention as a result of a, a supply chain issue? Yes, I think so. Especially because, as you hint, it it um, impact uh, everybody. So. In many times, uh, we think about kind of our um, our our end of uh, things. But if you look at a large economy like China that exports um, much of its uh, production capacity to Europe, suddenly these exports become a little bit uh, more complicated, take a little bit longer, cost a little bit more. So there is impact, obviously, on the Chinese economy. And as you hint, when things are impacting all around the world in a similar fashion. There is uh, more of a power to change how they work and to try and uh, reduce their impact. How is this affecting China and and where are they on all of this, uh, especially considering they're feeling their own, they've got their own issues, they're feeling their own uh, economic strains? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good question. Judging by the latest uh, vote in uh, the UN with respect to the issues in the Red Sea, uh, China abstained, so they didn't uh, vote uh, to to put a stop for the Houthi attacks over there. But if this situation would remain uh, for longer, I think the impact uh, is going to be felt by uh, additional Chinese companies, which may change how the Chinese government uh, reacts to uh, these attacks. In the end, oh, for an, I mean, I'm being very blunt here, but is this not the world economy versus uh, fragmented terrorism? I, I'm afraid you're right. There is uh, hmm. you know, some people who sit on uh, important uh, transportation channel. And, you know, the entire GDP of uh, Yemen is crossing through the Bab el-Mandab in a week in terms of worth of merchant. So suddenly some people who are poor and don't uh, play an important role in the economy in general can can play a a really important role in the global economy. Mm -hmm. And... When you have too much power, too much power to too small uh, number of people, some some strange things happen. Oh, for Baron with us, distinguished professor, operations management, academic director, MMA program at the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, there's been a lot of uh, aviation stories, it seems, there have been of late. Let's bring in Keith Mackey, Mackey International. He is with us now. Keith, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am Scott and you. So far, so good. Uh, we'll give you to give us an update on the Max 9 and all that and the door issues before. But uh, another story involving a flame out on a jet, a cargo jet. Good news is uh, this happened in Miami. Everybody, uh, crew and everybody arrived safely. But it's kind of scary to see this going across the sky. Uh, any idea what happened here? Well, apparently it was what we call an uncontained engine failure. Uh, the airplane 
perfectly capable of flying on two engines. It's got four. So it was not a, an issue at all in that regard. But the engine is designed to be contained when it fails. And this one wasn't. So it isn't really a Boeing problem. In this case, the engines on this airplane were made by General Electric. And the investigation will take place to discover just exactly what failed inside the engine and uh, how it can be corrected to prevent it from happening in the future. You talked about this being contained. Explain that, what it means, and and, and uh, how that affects the airplane if it is not contained. Well, when it's contained, when the engine fails, uh, it just sort of stops, shall we say, or isn't producing thrust. But this one actually came apart, and pieces came out of the engine, i.e. it was uncontained, and right. that created the uh, the sights that the people in Miami saw as the airplane flew over downtown Miami. How do you put a fire out on a plane of an engine? As you said, it had four, so landing or performance wasn't an issue. What is the fear? What is the challenge at that point? Well, if you have a, an engine fire, the procedure is you shut the engine down first. If the fire continues, there are two fire bottles. You fire the first one, and you wait a minute, and if the fire and the engine fire goes out, that's it. But if it does not, you fire the second bottle, and that should put the fire out, and then you uh, return to land, hopefully, at the nearest suitable airport. And does the loss of one, if you've got four, um, does it affect performance? How, how does the plane react? Well, it's a, a minimal problem, actually. The airplane flies very well on three engines, and... Uh, I know I've had a similar circumstance occur to myself, and uh, it, it was not an issue. It was kind of exciting when the engine blew up. But uh, in this case, they'll be investigating. Apparently, there was a hole found in the in the airplane. We don't know where, somewhere in the engine. They said about the size of a softball. I would assume it was in the engine cowling or something like that. But the airplane was apparently repaired rather quickly and dispatched several hours later on its uh on its uh route i think it uh, went br- from uh i think it went to san juan and then to bogota you brought up an interesting point keith and obviously you, you've spent lots of time in the air and such and i imagine every day is thank goodness uneventful and it's just a typical uh procedure uh you know a typical day uh but then all of a something all of a sudden something like this happens how do you react to something like that in the cockpit i mean i know you're all trained for it you're ready for it and as you said it's there's a bit of excitement there but what what is that like after you know so many uninterrupted hours of flight flawless well as you say we're trained for it we're trained to expect it and uh the procedures that we go through are very uh distinct even the the verbiage that we use has to be uh trained in case we don't have any lack of communication with the crew or with the people on the ground uh, we just go through the procedure we have a checklist for an engine fire you take the checklist out go down the checklist make sure all the items have been accomplished make sure the engine's secured on a four-engine airplane, uh, if it was an engine fire, it would probably uh, 
be a motivation to want to get back on the ground quicker, but it was just a failure of some sort. The airplane can generally continue to its destination without the third, the fourth engine. Uh, anything more on the door issue with uh, that we've seen happen, and and the concern around that alternative uh, alternative door on the Max Nine? Well, of course, the FAA has been very much involved in it, and then the uh, the procedures of inspection when the airplane was closed up at the factory, and how those uh, apparently the bolts were actually missing and never installed in the in the airplane that secured the door in place. And they were rather slow in approving the uh, procedure to return them to service to be sure that they did cover all the possibilities and to be sure as they inspected all the other airplanes that there was no possibility of this happening again. It was a very serious situation. It could have had some serious ramifications. We were lucky on that one. So is it more of uh, something that was not done as opposed to a equipment failure? I mean, is there concern that they were never really put in place in the first place? So it's not a structural issue. It's a maintenance issue. That's my understanding. It wasn't a design flaw. It was an assembly flaw. Apparently, the door was not secured properly when the aircraft was assembled. Postery was put in and uh, no one at that point could inspect the hardware because it had been covered up. Right. So somewhere along the line, the inspection procedure failed. The people failed to install the bolts in the first place, if that was the case, and the inspection procedures failed to discover it before being closed up. So there was actually a couple of different failures that caused that issue. Keith Mackey with us, Mackey International, covering the world of aviation and trying to uh, explain it all to us. Keith, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. You too, Scott. Take care. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We certainly have heard lots about the uh, infamous Justin Trudeau family vacation, the one that we all have at uh, Rich Friends uh, Resorts uh, that are contributors to the Trudeau Foundation. Uh, And, and, you know, we've been this uh, through this before with the prime minister and nobody begrudges anybody from taking a vacation. And we all know there's extra security and cost because they're leaders, all of that sort of stuff. But it just seems that um, the prime minister can't help but tie his two shoes together uh, on any given day. And this is no different. The prime minister's office initially said that no problems here. Uh, This has all been cleared by the ethics committee. Uh, the ethics commissioner, rather, and that um, he's paying for the vacation. The family's paying for their own vacation. Then a clarification or a change of facts, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, no, no, they're, they're not paying for it. It's now a free vacation, courtesy of the owners of the resorts. Uh, uh, the resort that is where uh, obviously it gets a little cloudy. Let's bring in Mike Barrett, member of Parliament representing Leeds, Grenville, Thousand Islands, and Rideau Lakes, Conservative Shadow Minister for Ethics and Accountability and here now. Mike, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So is this the fact that the vacation uh, was free as opposed to being paid for or the fact that they weren't very thorough in communicating all of this? Well, there's a couple of of big problems here. The first, of course, is that um, the Prime Minister's uh, um, office offered a deception to Canadians when communicating about this, saying that they were paying for it when in fact um, the opposite uh, was true. So that's, that's, of course, a big problem. Um, and we don't know what he told the ethics commissioner. We believe he was in contact with the ethics commissioner. 
But uh, the the open question there is, was the ethics commissioner also a victim of deception by the prime minister? And, and if so, that's that's another problem. And of course, uh, look, this this law, the, the Accountability Act, was passed under a conservative government in the late 2000s. And no one thought then that we would need to make a rule that prime ministers couldn't accept gifts, even from friends, worth you know, tens of thousands of dollars. And, and so we find ourselves in a very unique situation with, uh, with Mr. Trudeau, who doesn't seem to. He, he said that his Christmas was, was just like yours or mine or any of your listeners. And I haven't encountered anyone in my travels um, who, uh, other than the, the PM, who got an $84,000 gift from a friend this Christmas. So we don't know what the ethics commissioner knew, whether he was presented with the information that they're paying for it or if he was presented with the information that it was free. We don't know that. Is that why you're asking them or, or the ethics commissioner to appear? Yeah, so we wanted the, we wanted two things. One, we wanted the ethics commissioner to appear, but we also wanted uh, the, the prime minister to release his correspondence with the ethics commissioner's office. So um, I wrote to the commissioner and his reply was, that, um, you know, uh, predictably that that he can't release that correspondence. Those are confidences that the, the prime minister would have to to waive. And uh, and frankly, Justin Trudeau could could clear this up in a second. If if his uh, third and and so far uh, latest story is the, is the true one, and that's the same set of facts that he presented the ethics commissioner with. Well, that would clear this uh, a great deal of this up um, because there is one other question, Scott, and that's um, who actually paid for it? Because if his friend put down plastic and paid for the trip or paid for the accommodations, well, that is acceptable under the law, um, though it, it's um, you know not, not in good taste uh, for a prime minister to accept a gift of, of that magnitude. But if the corporation um, offered this gift to the prime minister, well, um, you can't be friends with a corporation and the act doesn't allow for that, in which case it would uh, would not be compliant with federal law. And there's been some question, Mike, of whether this is even uh, the job of the ethics commissioner to approve these. What is the role of the ethics commissioner here? Less about vacation, more that the gift part isn't is being uh, held to account. Right, and and it is a question of of uh, the acceptability of the gifts. That's what you would put to the ethics commissioner, um, whether it's compliant with the members' code or the um, or the act, and. Um, and the prime minister's government house leader, he was sworn in and he, uh, he filling in this position on a temporary basis, walks out to do his first press conference and says, don't worry, the prime minister um, got this pre-cleared by the ethics commissioner, which, as you said, isn't, that's not true either. So um, the ethics commissioner can, can provide guidance and tell you if, if the facts that you present uh, to his office um, are uh, are, are, would be compliant uh, with with the act, but it's not, um, you know, carte blanche or permission to um, to go and engage in in um, behavior that's borderline or or offside with uh, with what's acceptable or with what's legal. What should the prime minister have done here? How do you handle something like this correctly? Well, you do what everyone else did, and you pay for your own vacation. I mean, uh, that's that's the, the, the that's the first thing. Um, you know, uh, I've got great friends as well, but, um, you know, though none of them offered me an $84,000, uh, gift, I understand as a public office holder, it wouldn't be acceptable for me to, to, um, to take them up on that. So, so that's one thing. Um, the other is you've got to be honest with Canadians. You, you know, when we have the head of government who 
is, um, you know, uh, is, is, is being dishonest. It, that's, that creates all kinds of, of challenges with Canadians' confidence in, in uh, elected officials, with our democratic institutions. It's, uh, it's corrosive to, to public trust. And, um, and now, you know, he needs to be transparent, which he's always promised that he would be, but very rarely is. And he needs to release those emails and, um, or call logs with the ethics commissioner's office. We need to, we need to see what his office actually said then, because, um, you know, uh, the prime minister has been found guilty of breaking ethics laws twice, once dealing with a vacation. And, uh, it, it, it does seem like he hasn't learned anything from it, but, um, that doesn't mean that, uh, that, the, the behavior is is acceptable and um, and we need to hold him to account because nope that's that's our our job and uh, Canadians expect that and um, Mr. Trudeau says he's very eager to to run in the next election. I think that people should know um, what his conduct has been uh, between his offerings at the ballot box. So where is this going? Uh, the ethics commissioner is going to testify, I guess, towards the end of the month. Uh, is there? Will it be a situation where oh, I can't comment on that? Oh, I can't comment on that. Or do you think you'll get answers to your questions? Well, we're going to look for some precision on on the acceptability of gifts in a case like this. From you know, as I said, um, if if uh, the uh, the friend, the family friend, um, personally paid for um, for the stay, well, that's um, that's you know falls under under uh, one set of, uh, of of rules, or did the corporation simply waive the fees for the stay, which making it a gift from the corporation? So does that change the playing field? That's a question we're going to put to the commissioner because he hasn't responded to that in my correspondence with him. Um, but I do expect that some of what he some of what he says will be that you know these these uh, this advice is offered on a confidential basis, and the prime minister. Uh, would need to waive those confidences if if he wanted to, um, and he doesn't want to, and that's why I did move a motion at the ethics committee for uh, for the production and order of production for for those emails, um, but uh, regrettably the NDP and the Liberals um, um, they they blocked that, and uh, and you know we'll we'll be left wondering I think in in um, in any case uh, what was actually said and. Uh, I think that based on the fact that the prime minister wasn't honest with Canadians, I would expect that the same is true uh, for his his correspondence with the ethics commissioner. Mike Barrett with us, member of parliament representing Leeds, Grenville, Thousand Islands and Rideau Lakes, conservative shadow minister for ethics and accountability on the Jamaican vacation. Mike, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Take care. Stay warm. You might remember the name Sam Cooper. He's founder of the Bureau, the Bureau.news, to find out more. Uh, Sam was instrumental in the story, uh, which pretty much gripped the nation in regard to election interference over the last uh, two federal elections and um, how the Chinese Communist Party had interwoven itself uh, into Canadian life. Uh, in a new piece for the Bureau, Sam Cooper writes that, according to new research, the Asia-Pacific trade policies that were started by Justin Trudeau are incentivized money laundering and Chinese interference. Sam Cooper is with us now. Sam, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Thanks, Scott. So uh, I'll get right to it. How are these trade policies incentivizing money laundering and interference? Well, actually, it was started by Pierre Trudeau uh, and continued very uh, enthusiastically right now by Justin Trudeau. So this has been a long-running high-level strategy to boost uh, immigration 
and especially investment from that growing powerhouse China and other Asia-Pacific nations, uh, Vancouver saw the real flood of this money from the 1970s and onward. But this thesis from a Simon Fraser University uh, academic who was formerly on RCMP's anti-gang unit in British Columbia finds that uh, the incentives of bringing in this investment from China, what's coming with it are transnational organized crime groups, fen the fentanyl trade, and massive money laundering that's coming into real estate in Vancouver and Toronto as well through underground banking that is uh, really uh, directly connected to this Pacific Rim trade. And so uh, the thesis writer suggests that Canada's successive federal governments uh, are really saying it's all about the money. They know there are huge problems here. And by the way, these problems, uh, CSIS and the RCMP now know, include how China's Communist Party leverages these organized crime and money laundering fund flows to use in their operations, which, Scott, include foreign interference and election interference. So in a nutshell, uh, the thesis says Canada needs to regulate this, but uh, they're turning the the people powers would be have turned a blind eye for a long time. Is it a different China than the days of Justin's dad? Well, I've looked into this for the Bureau, and in the days of Justin's dad, uh, it can be argued that it was not at all a different China. The Communist Party always had its uh, sophisticated plans to uh, entice our leaders through trade and to convince them that China was rising peacefully. And so uh, Pierre Trudeau and many prime ministers and uh, finance ministers after have bought into that myth. But uh, certainly... Xi Jinping, the current general secretary, uh, is uh, taking that velvet glove off and he's now hitting with a, an iron fist around the world. And it's very clear that the Communist Party has fooled our leaders. I would add, though, that uh, we can't accuse Pierre Trudeau of the same uh, ignorance and naivety of his son, I'm afraid, because at that time, uh, you could argue that uh, Mr. Uh, Pierre Trudeau was trying to balance the growing power competition between Russia and uh, the United States. And uh, Ms. Trudeau Sr. was worried about nuclear missiles flying over Canada. So maybe he was trying to hedge his bets with China. And it, it turns out that he bet wrong. And, you know, we all remember 20, 25 years ago, China was the golden goose. Nobody could get enough of it. And everybody hoped that they would embrace democracy as opposed to doing what they did with Hong Kong. But it's very much a different time now. Uh, is, and I've asked you this before, is, is it too late to address this or does it just take another government where this is a priority? I've uh, I've thought about this, and I'd like to be completely fair to members of the Liberal Party. Not all of them have the same views as uh, Justin yeah. Trudeau in his office, but I do believe it's too late for Justin Trudeau in his office. As I've reported, uh, they've made choice after choice to ignore Canadian intelligence and RCMP, in fact, warnings that uh, getting this deep into bed with China when it's so clear how they are using money to uh, uh, corrupt Canada uh, it's inexcusable. And uh, this includes attacks on the Chinese diaspora community that were ignored by Justin Trudeau, uh, either for naive reasons or worse, I believe. So I do I do think that a change of government, a ch some new blood in Ottawa is really the only way to address how deep uh, China has its hooks into our government at this point.
What about pressure from our allies to readjust our focus? And even uh, just earlier today, there was information about business in Canada uh, say, say they want to be a part of this discussion as well. So they're not blindsided when CSIS says, hey, this happens or that happens. Like it seems we can't get the information from CSIS to the, to, uh, the prime minister's office, but even business want to be shared in that information as well. Yeah, I do believe there are uh, patriotic and, and honest uh, and uh, upright business uh, industrialists in Canada that would uh, like to be involved more closely in decision making or rather, you know, getting the straight goods from CSIS. CSIS faces some strictures around, you know, sensitive information they can share. And so uh, this is, you know, the old story of how Nortel, Canada's leading, you know, telecom mm. innovator, fell, as I've reported, to uh, Chinese intelligence operations that stole intellectual property. So absolutely, good businesses need to be in there because if they're not looking at the long-term uh, risks to hostile foreign powers stealing you know, their advantage, they'll lose in the end. I, To your point, uh, there's no question that already the United States, I believe behind the scenes, is putting uh, righteous and immense pressure on some quarters of the Canadian government that if they were not, uh, you know, getting strong advocacy from the United States, they would have sold off any number of sensitive uh, sort of infrastructural plays that China uh, and China's military would love to buy up. And that's exactly what, uh, uh, you know, is the subject of the thesis that I reported on today. China strategically uh, is getting into Canada's real estate, sensitive technology, resources. And if you don't have a government that understands that, uh, then the people in Washington, D.C. won't put up with it too much longer because we share a continent and a border. And uh, uh, I can tell you, Scott, I for years I've been told by my sources in the United States that they see Canada going uh, in a very wrong direction. Sam Cooper with us, founder of the Bureau, the Bureau.news to find out more, uh, piecing it all together in regard to Chinese interference. Sam, as always, thanks for the time. Great work. Be well. Thanks, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Uh, I found this fascinating because we remember it was not long ago when there was lots of chatter around uh, CSIS and them uh, telling the prime minister's office uh, about uh, alleged election interference from the Chinese Communist Party in the last two elections. And there was a big debate about whether the information got there or not. And then we figured out it got there, but it just never was really paid attention to. And then did the prime minister see it and what have you? And you got to wonder why, the you know, what's happening with the sharing of information? Well, now the Business Council of Canada wants the federal government to make legislative changes that would allow Canada's ceases to share threat intelligence with companies to help them protect themselves and keep them from getting into hot water. Um, but if we can't get the prime minister to figure it out, how do we get the, the, the information to the business council, uh, business council of Canada? Let's bring in Christian Leprac, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada, uh, Queen's University and fellow at the McDonald Laurie Institute. Christian, thanks for your time. Hope you're well. Yes, I'm keeping warm, Scott. Good afternoon. Uh, this seems like a grand idea, Christian, but as so many grand ideas, it doesn't seem to be acted on. How can we uh, get information to the Business Council of Canada when we can't seem to get it to the Prime Minister? Yeah, that's an apt question, of course. And of course, now that we the government is seeing further indifference to security, intelligence, and defense by appointing a part-time national security intelligence advisor, 
Um, you know, it, I'm not sure how much attention they're actually going to give to these concerns. But it hearkens to broader issues, of course, that we have in this country, that we have a very good intelligence service, however under-resourced and small it may be, security intelligence service, that like so many of our other intelligence agencies, see FinTrack, for instance, has a severe restrictions, legislative restrictions by design placed upon it in terms of what it can share, with whom it can share, and when it can share that information. And that what we are hearing from many corners, whether it's in terms of research security with universities, uh, whether it's from local law enforcement agencies that feel let down by CSIS, or from the business community, is that clearly the posture that we have in the legislative framework is simply not fit for the 21st century let alone for the plethora of challenges that we're facing. And that's because there hasn't really been a major overhaul since 1984. If you look at the definition of the threats to the security of Canada, um, these threats are simply, the way this is framed, for instance, is simply not apt for the challenges that we're facing in the 21st century. And so uh, what Goldie Hyder here is raising is uh, more broadly uh, CSIS's posture um, and the need to ensure that if we're going to have a security intelligence service, um, it can actually have effective information flows, not just with the prime minister, but with the rest of entities in Canada that are facing very much the same uh, challenges, threats, subversion as our democratic institutions and government is. It seems that, you know, whatever the protocol is, whatever the process is, whatever it needs to be changed to, that it's being used as a scapegoat. Oh, we can't do this because of that. We can't do that because of this. And it seems that we're hiding, government's hiding behind this, as opposed to trying to find a solution. Yeah, so I think there's two issues at play. One is sort of that this is just a file on which I think this particular government is sort of indifferent. But at the same time, to their credit, they have just initiated a public discussion conversation on reforms to the CSIS Act. And so Goldie Hyder leaning out of the window on this is not by accident. The government has deliberately called for people to weigh in. Now, the proposals that are being made in terms of changes to the CSIS Act is about as low-hanging fruit as you can imagine. It is a completely unambitious enterprise. And uh, proposals to changing the ability to share information are already among the proposals that are being floated and uh, is one of the reasons why the act urgently needs to be updated. So to some extent, Goldie Hyder is pointing out the obvious uh, that's already being proposed and simply reinforcing uh, what the government is, uh, is attempting here. But I think he's also at the same time using this as an opportunity to send a signal that businesses in this country are under very real and direct threat from the same sort of uh, recruitment by adversarial powers to obtain um, their intellectual property and other proprietary business information uh, from attempts to engage in gross espionage. And that these attempts aren't just in cyberspace because we always think about people are gonna steal all your, your data that there's a very real human intelligence threat. There's a real insider threat here and that people are actively be, uh, being recruited to subvert our own society, our own prosperity, our own companies, the intellectual property that is often subsidized or paid for by tax dollars 
companies whose businesses uh, whose, whose whose business models are being subsidized by tax dollars. So as taxpayers, every single person in this country who pays their fair share of taxes has a vested interest in making sure the security intelligence service of this country can actually share the intelligence that they have effectively because ultimately intelligence is the first line of uh, of defense. Um, how How is government going to react to this considering they're having a hard time getting the information and, and exchanging it with CSIS? How are they going to react to businesses' request for such information? Well, I think it reinforces that... Uh, the the government always likes to have all sorts of stakeholder and so forth consultations. But I think uh, the Business Council of Canada here speaking up uh, is a signal that um, nobody apparently has reached out to them for their views. Mm. And so they feel that the, they need to make their views public. So it's always puzzling that we have consultations, but these consultations often seem to be more of an echo chamber where government talks to those individuals who are already on side with what the government is proposing and perhaps not uh, not realizing that there's important blind spots. It's also an interesting observation in the sense that, of course, for a government that has spent significant amounts of public money on various programs and the pandemic, perhaps a realization and a signal from Goldie Hyder that his people, um, uh, his association are many of the companies in this country that actually generate the prosperity in this country, that generate the money from which people and companies pay the taxes that then allow these programs to happen. And so yet it's a little puzzling mm. to have that disconnect uh, where it appears that uh, we've not uh, directly talked to those people, uh, who those companies that are being actively undermined by adversarial players um, and uh, and where that ultimately then undermines the prosperity that generates the tax flows that allows us to pay for the programs and the ambitions that the government of the day has. Christian Leprac, professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Always fascinating, Christian. Thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. Have a lovely weekend, Scott. Take care. There's more strange uh, news surroundings around Sports Illustrated. The iconic magazine and website was reportedly laid off uh, most of its staff, and it was only a month ago that Sports Illustrated was embroiled in a controversy surrounding articles that were written by artificial intelligence. To bring in uh, to talk more about this, Jeffrey Dvorkin with us, senior fellow Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough, author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeff is with us now. Jeff, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm fine, thanks. Hope you are as as well too. Uh, obviously, Jeff Sports Illustrated is an iconic brand. I mean, but I, I guess they're falling victim to what every other, uh, uh, I guess, institution in in the print industry is suffering from. How did they end up where they were? How did they? Uh, how come they're not more successful? Well, I think one of the things that I've been reading about it today, and I haven't read Sports Illustrated since I I got a subscription for my bar mitzvah. 50 years ago. Um, <laughs> um, and it just, it, it's kind of stodgy. Um, if you want some interesting writing about sports, um, there are a lot of other places that uh, you can find it. Uh, certainly in Canada, some of the best sports writers are in, in Toronto. Uh, in the United States, the New York Times has just launched an online uh, version called The Athletic, which apparently is yeah. going to do, is doing pretty well. But it's been a bad week for, uh, for print media in the United States. The LA Times, the Los Angeles Times today had a walkout. 
uh, of all of its writers and reporters. Uh, the Baltimore Sun, which has been struggling for years and, and has been a pretty terrific regional newspaper just outside of Washington, D.C., it's been sold a couple of times. And the latest iteration is that it's been sold to a very conservative network. Um, and the owner came in and says, I don't read the newspaper. I don't know what I'm going to do with you. So it didn't leave the, uh, the, the staff feeling particularly optimistic. And I think that what we're seeing in general is this kind of shift to a, a different platforms, but no one is really sure what they are. And as you mentioned, Sports Illustrated got into trouble a few weeks ago because it contracted out to artificial intelligence stories about football players and it got the pictures wrong and it got the names wrong and it showed that there are real limits to doing journalism without human beings involved. Um, you know, sports is still big though, Jeff. And even with traditional TV, I mean, it's, you know, sports uh, programming is, is still pretty successful. And as you mentioned, there's lots of online uh, platforms that are, are doing uh, quite well. But Sports Illustrated, in, even with that big brand, has, has sort of fallen into lack of relevance. Well, exactly. And I think that there were opportunities. I mean, I, I don't know the sports journalism business that well. But I, my sense is that when there were opportunities for Sports Illustrated to partner with streaming services or with yeah. television networks, ESPN or others, they didn't do it. Um, so they were kind of left in the, in the dust of other opportunities. And I think that that was a kind of an object lesson for other print media organizations to look around and say, who else can we do what we're doing but do it with with some flair, and they didn't have that. Um, and they, they've been cutting and cutting and cutting, and, and uh, they're ma- basically known now for their swimsuit edition. Yeah. It comes out every February, uh, but that's not really quite enough to maintain a journalistic organization. Well, yeah, it's that was my next point, was the swimsuit edition, which seems to be their most popular issue, but it seemed they sort of relied too much on that angle as opposed to the actual sports journalism and following the stories they need to be covering. Exactly right. And I think that one of the issues is, is that uh, when you when a news organization starts to go after the, the so-called uh, low-hanging fruit yeah. of, uh, of information, uh, they will end up being uh, abandoned. Uh, people get pretty bored with that pretty quickly. It'll be pretty hard for them, Jeff, to win back the credibility, especially when the AI issue comes up, won't it? I, I think they've uh, they've lost their opportunity now, and they've yeah. laid off all of their staff, and it's just going to be picking up the, the residue and selling it off, and it'll be uh, an example of something that kind of worked mid-20th century, uh, but failed to take advantage of what was out there now. What is the role of AI in journalism? Because, again, you know, I go back to the day of the Encyclopedia Britannica, and, you know, even if you copied the Encyclopedia Britannica uh, word for word, you are going to get caught, and it's plagiarism, whether it's done through a computer or you physically picking up uh, one of those old encyclopedias and such. So is this really as difficult a decision as it seems? Because, as you mentioned, AI will give you, uh, just type in your name and see what you get. Uh, You'll get all kinds of variations, well, whatever's out there will be assembled together. But that doesn't mean it's a final product. 
Exactly. I think journalism, um, I, I'm a bit old-fashioned on this stuff, Scott. I think journalism is a labor-intensive product. It needs yeah. human beings who understand nuance and context. I mean, I asked uh, ChatGPT to do my obit, and they came back and they got it all wrong. They said I would do this, yeah. and I hadn't done that, and it was just, it was a mess. Um, I asked, I asked ChatGPT to do it a second time. They got it mostly right, but it wasn't, it still wasn't right. Yeah. Um, and I think that the, what we're seeing now is that AI has some very interesting possibilities. Um, my, uh, my web guy, who had to fix something in my computer, told me that he was asked by another company to organize the websites of 80 different users of the Internet. And he could have done that, but it would have taken him weeks. But yeah. what he did is he shifted that request to AI, and AI came back and said, here's how those 80 uh, media uh, computer organizations can be organized. And it did it in 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there is a role for AI, but it's not, it's not in the idea of contextualizing information. That's what you do and, and other journalists and other broadcasters do because they're still, so far, committed to the human, the human factor. And that, that, I think, is the important thing. Well, and to me, and I'll use the old Encyclopedia Britannica example, um, it gathers all of the information on the issue that you want and it delivers it to you in one nice little package. But those op, uh, that information that's coming in from all of those different avenues may not necessarily correspond with each other or even be related to each other. So, you know, as opposed to you having to go through the old Encyclopedia Britannica and write down all the information that you wanted, this gathers everything for you. But again, it doesn't necessarily apply to what you're doing. That's exactly right. And I think that uh, if media organizations understand their relationship with their audience, their commitment to provide reliable contextual information is what, what the public both wants and needs. Um, and now that we're coming into a, a, an election era, uh, we're seeing a whole bunch of videos popping up claiming to be um, the, the ideas and the thoughts of various politicians, but in fact, these are avatars. So the, yeah. the mischief makers are already out there, and it's going to take some important triage on the part of media organizations, uh, broadcasters, and print to say, wait a minute, don't believe what you're seeing. There are already um, um, videos claiming that various media personalities mm -hmm. have said something that's destroyed their careers. And what they've done is they've created avatars uh, of these people saying things that they've never said. Yeah. Um, and it's basically an, a, a way in which people are being uh, mischievous in order to make money. And we have to be even more careful about what we download and what we send uh, to, to what we've been receiving on our websites. Jeffrey Borkin with us, senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism, University of Toronto, Scarborough, author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeff, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show.
show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This a text from Andre. Listen to uh, Andre's story. Uh, all this talk about an opioid epidemic really pisses me off. What about the success stories such as mine? It has never crossed my mind to go down that path. Without my oxyneos, I could not function. I maxed out on Tylenol and Advil too. I hate being painted with the same brush as those people who abuse it. Andre. Keep right except to pass. 